Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbar. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week is one of the most powerhouse rock and roll singers of all time. It's Ann Wilson, lead singer and one of the primary songwriters of the band Heart. Alongside her younger sister, Nancy, Ann started Heart in 1973 and rose to superstardom with all-time classic rock anthems like Magic Man, Crazy on You, and Barracuda. Not to be outdone, they returned in the mid-'80s to dominate the charts with hit after hit, like What About Love, Never, and All I Want to Do is Make Love to You, songs that have combined to sell over 35 million albums worldwide. Anne was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a founding member of Heart in 2013. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Very, very, very thrilled today to welcome our guest live from Florida this morning, Ann Wilson. Hi, Ann. Hi. How are you? I'm, I'm excellent. I'm just hanging out here in the spring weather. Nice. We are waiting for the spring weather. <laughs> we are waiting for the spring weather to hit in New York. Unfortunately, it was 30 degrees this morning towards the end of March. Oh, boy. Uh, hopefully soon. What, one of the reasons that I was so excited to talk to you is not only having grown up with your music and just being such a fan of, of the songs that you've written and songs that you've sung and the music that you've made with your band, but that music is so ever-present even today. I mean, everywhere you go, there is not a day that goes by that we are not hearing your voice, we are not hearing your songs. And it's really this tapestry of music that you and the band started creating, when was it? You know, not 50 years ago, but pretty close, where this music not only lives on, but it sounds so timeless and urgent and where I'm going with this is we just worked on the music to a television show called Daisy Jones and the Six. And I'm not sure if you've heard about it. It's about a fictional rock band in the 70s. And people compare it to Fleetwood Mac and, and the back and forth, you know, will they, won't they sexual tension between the two singers, the guy and, and the girl in the group. But in episode six, which just aired on Amazon Prime of Daisy Jones and the Six, Daisy, the singer, decides to disappear and she buys a ticket to Greece, goes to the airport and they say, well, how long will you be in Greece? And she looks at the camera and says, you know, I never think that far ahead. And boom, right on the downbeat, crazy on you as a cue. And it just wow. works. It just works so well. That song, your voice. You know, did you think when you were creating this music, did you think that 30, 40, 50 years later, the songs and the records would still be as resonant as they are? Oh, no, no. 30, 40, 50 years later, <laughs> you know, we were, I think, planning on not being alive anymore, <laughs> you know, like like young people do. But Crazy on You, I think, has a timelessness to it just because of what it's written about. I mean, it's it's just about all the stress in modern society. Right. And what do you do with that, you know? And so that, that message hasn't changed. Wow.
I read a quote where you said Crazy on You may be the best song that Hart ever did. I feel that. And was Crazy on You the first single that the band ever released? I think the very first single was How Deep It Goes. Right. And that didn't go anywhere. And so the next one was Crazy, yeah. Well, let, let's back up. You were born in San Diego. Everyone associates um, the band with the Pacific Northwest, with Seattle, with Vancouver. But you were actually born in San Diego. Your dad was in the military, so you moved a lot. Yeah, yeah. We lived just about everywhere. There was a, a Marine base. So, <laughs> you know, it was East Coast, West Coast, Taiwan, Camp Pendleton, just everywhere. So that had to be challenging for you. You know, you make any kid who, whose parents are in the military and you move around, you have to make new friends, you have to leave old friends. That had to be, yeah. had to be tough. Yeah, you're always the new kid in school and you never fit in. And, and, uh, and kids at the existing school that you're new in, don't accept you right off. So I think that's what drew the Wilson family close. We were just like really close knit because we accepted each other and we were travel buddies, you know. Well, besides you and your sister, Nancy, how many other siblings are there? One other. And so it was the three siblings and your mom and dad. Right. Yeah. And our dog. And your dog. And... Was that the same dog as Dog and Butterfly, or are we getting ahead of ourselves? Oh, no, that's, <laughs> he was much earlier. He was way earlier. I, I, read, I read that your parents gave you confidence and that they really dug what you were doing and, and never said, hey, don't, don't try that music thing. They were very, very supportive. Well, they were both lovers of music. My father had a beautiful baritone voice, and my mother was a classically trained pianist. So they, you know, at cocktail parties, there was always music and and there was always music all the time in our house. So I don't think it was that much of a stretch when Nancy and I started to learn how to play acoustic guitar by listening to Paul Simon. Wow. They liked it because it was quality music, for one thing. Right, for sure. I think if we have gone in and done another kind of music that was more trashy, they wouldn't have been so into it. Right. You mentioned Paul Simon. Who were some of the other early artists that you remember hearing um, around the house that really inspired you? Oh, of course, Beatles, Moody Blues. My parents were big on opera and operetta. So we heard Gilbert and Sullivan and we heard all that stuff. <laughs> My father bought us family tickets, season tickets to the Seattle Opera. Wow. So every time there was a new opera in town, we went as a family to see it. When did an appreciation of music and having fun playing guitar and, and singing with your sister Nancy, when did you start taking it seriously? Like, hey, this is something we enjoy, but we're also good at it, and this could be more than just sitting around the house and singing. Yeah, I think that it's we just kind of started trying to play and sometimes it really worked, sometimes it didn't. <laughs> like when we tried to play Paul Simon acoustic guitar and it didn't ever really didn't ever really stick because um it's hard to play that kind of stuff. Nancy did it. Right, right. Were were you listening to any of the harder stuff that was coming out in the late sixties? early 70s, as you were starting to take the music more seriously? Were you listening to Zeppelin? Were you listening to some of the more guitar-driven, harder-edge bands? Yes, we were listening to Zeppelin. We were listening to Mountain, Stones. Yeah, we, we had different likes. And when did you discover your voice? I mean, your, your voice is so iconic and I say without any reservation whatsoever, you are one of the greatest singers of all time. When did you discover your voice and know that you had this powerful instrument? 
Well, thank you. <laughs> you know, I didn't really discover my voice until I had um, already moved up to Vancouver, BC with the band. So I must have been about 21, 20 or 21. And uh, we were in the basement rehearsing and the guys in the band wanted to do a medley of Led Zeppelin songs. And none of them could really hit the high notes, you know, so it went to me to do it. And when I was figuring that out, all of a sudden I realized that I could sing hard and high. I just had to open up a certain door in my soul to be able to just relax like that and do it. Sometimes things that are new are hard to achieve because there's a fear level that you're going to fail or be a fool or look stupid. But, you know, I was just able to kick that little door open. And who was in the band at that time? Was Nancy with you then when you guys first moved up to Vancouver, B.C.? No, she wasn't in the band yet. It was Steve Fossen, Roger Fisher, and Brian Johnstone on drums, and John Hanna on keyboards. Was the band called Heart yet? It was called Hocus Pocus. And then when we got to Canada, we changed it to Heart, just because there was all this gear sitting around, all these speaker cabinets that had Heart written on them already. Wow. <laughs> from from the Seattle Heart. Wow, what was the Seattle Heart? It was a, a local band in Seattle. Don Wilhelm, Roger Fisher, Steve Fossen, and one other person, I don't know. I see. So some of your band members had been yeah. in a band called Heart. Got it. Yeah. So you right. changed. Because I had read that there was a band called White Heart. Was that part of this whole trajectory? Yes. Got it. There was White Heart, and then they shortened it to Heart, and then it was Hocus Pocus, and then Heart again. There you go. When did you start writing songs? Did you start writing songs? You know, you said you were doing covers and you were doing some medleys and, and things and, and really finding your voice. When did you find your writing voice? I think it was after um, Mike Flicker, our future producer, had come down to see us in a club in Vancouver. He, I don't know, just winked at us the right way, I guess. And we thought, God, we, we, we better get some material going here. <laughs> so the first song we wrote was Magic Man, I think. Wow. And then Crazy on You, and then just went from there. Not a bad start, Anne. Thank you. <laughs> you know, Magic Man is personally one of my all-time favorite songs, not only how it's written and performed, but how it's produced. And you mentioned an artist like the Moody Blues that we were talking about earlier. There is so much going on in the record of Magic Man that I assume Mike Flicker played a role in really evolving that song into the epic record that it became with yes. you know with with the solos and everyone really doing their part it just jumps off the radio it did then and and it still does now iconic yeah thank you um i think so too flicker was hugely instrumental in magic man You should hear the demo. It was unrecognizable as Magic Man <laughs> today, you know. So that was, was that was really a lot owed to the vision of Mike Flicker, your producer, of taking that song and turning it into the dynamic record that it is. Yeah, yeah. He was, he's a great producer. Well, you mentioned Mike Flicker, and I had read about the first label that you guys signed to was a Canadian label called Mushroom. And was Mike Flicker a staff producer for Mushroom, or was he independent? He was. He was a staff producer for Mushroom. The main one, you know. Howard Lease was also working there. 
and was producing. So the two of them got together to sort of help Hart uh, develop themselves, define themselves in the studio. Because, you know, none of us had ever really been in the studio before. Right. I had gone in to do some country demos at one point, but it was nothing real, you know. It right. Was, so, so Flickr just really made me feel at home and worked with me. I think the first final vocal I did was Crazy on You. Oh, my goodness. And to get up there and, and sing that thing and mean it and be... Um, be aggressive but not off-putting. Uh, yeah, he was really instrumental in helping me bring that. The vocal on that song and and the production, the whole record is is timeless. I was listening to it, you know, as recently as this morning, and it does not sound old. It does not sound like it was recorded in 1975. You know, I know it's I know. It, it's crazy. Did Mike Flicker bring you in and sign you to Mushroom? Yeah, yeah, we got signed to Mushroom. And it was a fantastic day, you know, where everybody, like their special pens and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and a 40-page contract, you know. that. You know, there, 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 there's a famous record label in Australia called Mushroom. This is a different Mushroom. This was Mushroom in Canada. Did you know yes. who this label was before you signed them? Were they doing a lot of work in Canada at the time with records that you liked? Um, not necessarily records that I liked, but they definitely had a couple of hits going with, with uh, Songbird, Wildflower, and with... Uh, Oh, God, what's his name? Hot Child in the City. Oh, Nick Gilder. Wow. Yeah, Nick Gilder. Interesting. And um, they they were an indie label because, you know, we had been around. Mike Fisher, who was our manager at that point, had been around to every single major label that existed at the time and been turned down twice. You know, nobody knew what to do with the with the chick in the band who wasn't a disco diva and, you know, wasn't a folk singer. So Mushroom was kind of like our last resort. Got it. So when you say that he went everywhere, he went everywhere, not just in Canada, he went everywhere in the States as well? Yeah, he... he at that time, I don't think he was able to go down to the States, so... He went around to all the different labels in Canada who were working with the labels in the States remotely. Got it. I, I think what people may not realize as we're chatting today is that back in the early to mid-70s, when you guys are, are making these early recordings, the fact that there were two of you as sisters, you fronting vocally and, and Nancy obviously on guitar for for the band, that was unique. I don't think that that had ever been done. So usually when something is that unique, people are like, no, we're not interested. It doesn't really fit the model of, of what we're seeing. That's right, yeah. And we got a lot of that. Like they didn't know whether to pigeonhole us as up with people or, or some kind of Christian thing or girls club. They didn't know. So <laughs> right. Mushroom was the only one who just went, we don't care. Right. We'll try it. We're just going to sign them because we like the songs and we like them. Right. I read, and correct me if I'm wrong, because a lot of what you read is like, who knows if it's right or wrong. But I read, you mentioned that Mike wasn't able to come down to the States to shop the band to American record labels. I had read that during Vietnam, he went up to Canada so he wouldn't get drafted. You yes. and he were boyfriend and girlfriend. So you followed him and you actually wrote Magic Man about Mike. That's right, yeah. yeah. He was my first love, and, you know, I was 20, 21, so you can imagine the wild passion that, like, went into that love, just right off the top. <laughs> wow. uh, yeah, Magic Man was written about Mike, Michael, and uh, 
some of the other songs like Hear Song and a couple of the other ones too. And then he became your manager, right? Yes. You and Nancy had written a book called Kicking and Dreaming, a biography where yeah. you talked about the success of Magic Man being due to people who had worked for the label who were out there and basically going whatever it takes to get this on the radio. You know, this was the days of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and whatever it takes. And they did their job, and the song did its job, and just became a massive hit. Yeah, it's true. Mushroom also had a brilliant publicist by the name of Shelley Siegel, who's passed on now. But he, back in that day, put Nancy and I in a car. We went down to the States, and we drove around Detroit. We, we drove around the major cities, St. Louis and everything, and stopped at radio stations, just like in Coal Miner's Daughter, where we just would roll up to a radio station, get out, go in, sit with the disjockey, and be cute, I guess. And then, and after we left, then Shelley would leave the disc jockey a phone number for later. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and maybe a little bindle, you know. Courtesy of heart. Yeah, that's just how it was done. Right. Back then. Nancy and I didn't know about it until later, but. Well, all you, all you knew is that, you know, the people around you were doing their job and getting your music on the radio. What, what was the writing process like between you and Nancy? You were credited, the two of you, having written much of that first album together. Was there a division of labor where you did lyrics and she did riffs, or, or was it everybody did everything? Oh, I always counted on Nancy to come up with the, with the chord structure and the riffs and the you know, she's an original. She can play that acoustic guitar like most people play an electric. And she's got different ideas. I think it's partially from learning on Paul Simon. Right. But so, yeah, that's that's how we did it. And I generally wrote lyrics and came up with melodies and all that. And was it mainly you and Nancy writing, or was Roger writing and, and Mike and, and some of the other people in the band? It was mainly Nancy and I, but occasionally they would throw in an idea that would be important to the song. So, yeah, they helped write. You mentioned Mushroom Records earlier, famously or infamously, rather, the band had a falling out with Mushroom. And, you know, Mushroom kind of held ground and it got kind of ugly for a minute. Did that inspire, did that experience inspire your writing? I had read a quote of yours where you say that you write best when you're angry. Mm, yeah, that was said 45 years later, but <laughs> I think it's still true. Were there any specific songs that you wrote in the middle of this mushroom heart battle, you know, to try to figure out where their music goes beyond, you know, what they were doing in Canada? Our album, Private Audition, was written during that time. And there's one song on there about a casting couch. And there's another. There are a few songs on there. One's called Cities Burning. That's totally written in anger. I had read Barracuda was written in ang anger, too. Is that oh, right? Oh, totally, yeah. Do you want to talk about the creation of that song for a minute? Oh, sure. Yeah. That was before the Mushroom thing. And uh, we were opening up for the Kinks in Detroit. Yep, in Detroit. After our set, the dressing room was full of all these rack jobbers, as they were called, you know, industry types. And they're all kind of sleazily interested in the band with the two chicks. And how can we make that relevant? How can we make that sexy, you know? So one of them came up to me and showed me his little pornographic watch, <laughs> you know, where, where it's got a naked lady that appears. <laughs> and he said, so, Anne, how... How's your lover? And I went, well, Michael's great. He's right over there. You should go say hi to him. 
And um, he said, no, 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 I met your real lover, your sister, you know, your lover. And for some reason, that made me livid. And the reason now I know is because Nancy and I considered ourselves to be artists, and we were out there making art. <laughs> and, and to just be called the two chicks who you want to watch was insulting. Very insulting. Barracuda was written in response to that. Yeah, I went back to the hotel and just banged a bunch of words down that, that were pretty angry. Well, you know, it's a good thing you did because that song, you know, also not only became a big hit in 1977, but now 45 plus years later is also a song we hear all the time and just sounds great. You know, unfortunately, the creation of that song was born out of an unfortunate incident. How rampant was sexism? This is now the early to mid 70s. And then in the mid to late 70s, how bad was it for you and Nancy as, you know, you're out there as incredible songwriters, incredible musicians, fronting an incredible band, but there are guys like, or people like this guy, the rack jobber you mentioned, you know, who, mm -hmm. who are going to say disgusting things. How much of that did you have to face? Quite a bit. Yeah, quite a bit over the years. Of course, now it's, it's, calm down because it's just not done anymore it's not acceptable i think that that over the years we were instrumental in helping it not be acceptable you know oh no for sure i mean you guys are as iconic a, a rock band as Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones, or anybody else we can mention. The albums that re were recorded with Mike Flicker, starting with Dreamboat Annie in 75, you know, you went on this run with Dreamboat Annie into Little Queen, into Magazine, which was the last Mushroom record, Dog and Butterfly, um, Baby Lestrange. You know, just platinum and gold and double platinum and triple platinum. What was that experience like for you guys? Because the music that you were making, despite, you know, an occasional headfirst bout of lech-driven sexism from idiot rack jobbers, what was mm -hmm. this run like? You know, you're out there playing live, you're recording these great songs, and you're having success. Yeah, it's, it's, I always think, wow, what did we do right that we weren't doing before? and good things happen all the right people come your way the the right situations happen and so the run was dreamlike it's always dreamlike for, for me when it gets good but you have to really be careful because as Shelley Siegel always said you don't believe your own hype yes the minute you start believing your own hype then you're not real anymore. You're blowing it, you know? Right. We have a saying around here, after hot comes cold. Um, yes. <laughs> so, you know, let, let's talk about the continued hotness of heart before the reinvention, which is an amazing story unto itself. But one of my favorite heart songs of all time is Dog and Butterfly in 79. Can you talk about the creation of that song? Yeah. Um, everyone in our camp was reading Shogun at that time. So we were kind of a little bit on a on an Asian Japanese jag, you'd say. And uh, I was looking out my music room window one day, and I had a dog, a sheepdog, who was playing with a butterfly, like dogs do. They get interested in the butterfly, and they just start chasing it, and they're never going to catch it. And it struck me as being a metaphor for someone's career or for their looking for love or mm. whatever it is that they're chasing right that they will never get 
but still they keep going. Right, it's the chase. Yeah, so I wrote it into a little thing with a wise man where the young person walks up and and the wise man goes, oh, don't worry so much about reality. Just look at the dog and butterfly, you know. This is reality. See the dog and butterfly Up in the air you like to fly Dog and butterfly Although she had to try And she rolled back down to the warm soft ground With her laughing to the sky Up to the sky Dog and Butterfly. And and what's so great about that song? It was a change of pace. The the you know the heart records were always either really fierce, you know, like a crazy on you or a magic man or a barracuda, or really beautiful, like a dreamboat Annie or a dog and butterfly. And you guys were seamlessly able to show both sides of your music that way. And that was something that I was always really really taken with. Thank you. And yeah, that's something that that we really loved doing was being able to go back and forth between the hot and the cold, you know. Right. No, for for sure. The, <laughs> no, yeah, the 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 fierce and and the smooth. Yeah, and and the more intimate, for sure. Talk about the move from mushroom to Portrait CBS Epic. What was that like changing labels and then continuing this run in in the late 70s, early 80s? Well, I have to give credit to the people over at Portrait because they signed us at a time when when we were really off balance. We didn't have very good songs. We were all uh, you know, emotionally upset by the by the mushroom thing because there was a chance we weren't going to be allowed to work. And they they went ahead and they signed us. So we did Private Audition, which was a pretty off-balance record. But then we came back again with The Greatest Hits Live. Right. right. Which was a big success. You know, Portrait, CBS Epic all became the same thing. But then we yeah. talk about, you know, after hot comes cold. And so let's talk about the reinvention of the band. You know, moving into the mid-80s, the band moves from Epic to Capital. And the records that you guys start making for Capital in the mid-80s are made differently because you have a different producer yes. this time with Ron Nevison, but you're also using a lot of outside songwriters and a lot of outside material. That must have been different and challenging for songwriters. Yes, indeed. The mushroom situation threw us off in terms of our confidence and everything, and uh, we didn't have songs. But Don Grierson came along, who was doing A&R for Capital, and he believed in us, and he signed us to Capital at a time when Portrait was pretty much done with us right. because we didn't have songs, right? Right. So, so here comes Don Grierson. He signs us to Capital and says, like, I can supply you with hit songs, and... You can also do your own song. So the self-titled Heart album has outside material, and it's got songs written by us. Right, and and they were both hits. You had hits with the outside songs. You had hits with songs that you and Nancy co-wrote. Mostly with the outside songs, though, and that... Yeah, but uh, ne Never was on that first album, and you wrote that with Holly Knight, who we just talked to a couple right. of weeks ago, yes. and, and Gene Block, her friend. And and talk about who Connie is. I know that, you know, if you, <laughs> if, if you look at a Heart album, you may see songs written by Connie. Can you tell everybody who Connie is? Yeah. Um, when I was 15 in high school, I was in a German class, and I met a person named Sue Ennis, who was also a big Beatle fan, and we became best friends. And then Nancy also became best friends with us, so we had a threesome. Connie came out of 
the Gidget movies where, you know, every girl is named Connie. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> every single one. So we called each other Connie. So Connie is a pseudonym for you, Nancy, and Sue Ennis writing together. Right, yeah. Got it. Got Each it. and together. Got it. How did you feel about singing someone else's lyrics? It was really hard for me to sing something and mean it if I didn't write it. So, yeah, it was a big challenge. Some of them, like, when I first heard the demo for What About Love, I went... Oh my God, I hate this song. This is a victim's song. Right. Listen to this whiny demo singer, you know. And I was all thrown off by the demos, really. They're just sort of weak and whiny. So then Ron Nevison got me to sing them and really pump it up. And then they came alive. What about love? Don't you want someone to care about you? you really put yourself into it and turned it yeah. into your own song. I found it very interesting that before you guys worked with Don Grierson and, and Ron Nevison at Capitol, you had a huge hit with a song you didn't write for the movie Footloose with Mike Reno yeah. from Loverboy with Almost Paradise, which was a song written by Eric Carmen and Dean Pitchford. So maybe that was a little warm up for having success with songs you didn't write? That song I loved from the get-go, from the demo, because it was so gospely. Yes. The demo was so beautiful. I think that the actual record is beautiful, too. But I'll never forget hearing that demo for the first time. It was just like, whoa, yes, I'll do this. Wow. Do you remember who was performing on the demo? Eric Carmen was on the... Yeah, it was Eric Carmen on the demo. Yeah, for anyone who doesn't know the name, you should, because Eric's a, a brilliant musician, songwriter, was in an amazing band called The Raspberries. But I digress. Anyway, going back to the Capitol albums with Ron Neverson and Don Grierson. And Don Grierson, for people who don't know that name, Don Grierson, legendary A&R man, passed away recently, very sad, but was so great at his job. And one of the jobs of an A&R person, A&R stands for Artists and Repertoire, is finding songs for artists to record that, whether they write their own material or not, could help them continue to have success. So some of the songs that you guys had success with in the Don Grierson era of Capitol Records in the 80s, What About Love? which we talked about, Never, which we talked about, you wrote you know, with Sue and, and Nancy and Holly and Jean. And then... These Dreams, written by Bernie Taupin, Nothing at All in 86, Alone, which was, you know, These Dreams and Alone both went all the way to number one, Alone with Billy Steinberg and, and Tom Kelly. Obviously, the one that I think you get asked about a lot because it was an outside song that wasn't originally written for a female singer was All I Want to Do is Make Love to You. Do you remember the first time you heard that song? Uh, yes, I do. And I kind of went, ick, you know, like, <laughs> it's a song about an exchange of bodily fluids. It, it didn't seem sexy to me. Yeah, the lyrics, if you look at those lyrics, they're odd. Yeah, they're very odd. And if you know anything about Mutt Lang, you know that you can't change a word without clearing it with him. Right. And he was not... In, into any of the words being changed. Oh, 
Well, it was a massive hit. And, you know, Mutt Lang, yeah. you know, we talk about iconic record producers. Mutt Lang is, you know, probably on, on the Mount Rushmore of some of the most iconic of all time. I didn't realize until I heard you talk about the song that the song was originally written in the 70s by Mutt Lang, who wanted Don Henley to record it. I never knew that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it probably would have worked really well for for a man to sing it. Yeah, and, and then I realized, without knowing this prior to recently, that it had been released once before by Dobie Gray, the guy who, who did Drift Away, released it in 79. I, I've never even heard I didn't his, know that. Yeah, I've never wow. even heard his version. But, you know, to this day, when we think of All I Want to Do is Make Love to You, we think of, you know, the iconic 1990 recording by you and Hart. I work with a rock band here at Atlantic and named Hailstorm, and they have a female singer named Lizzie Hale, and mm -hmm. she, she is a big fan of yours and a big fan of, of the band, and they've actually covered that song before, and it's killer. But, you know, let's talk about some of the accolades that the band has had. You guys have sold over, I've read 35 million records, I, I've read 50 million records, who knows? But you've had 30 hit singles, you've had top 10 albums, you know, on the Billboard charts in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and the 2000, 2010. In 2013, you were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Was that important to you? Well, I didn't go seeking it. But it's nice to have the validation, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. To be recognized by your peers. Awesome. Yeah. And what was that night like? It was surreal. It was just, it was beautiful. I mean, it was for Chris Cornell inducted us and it was just really amazing to go up there and uh, and hug Chris and, and say thank you and thank you to all the fans and everything. It was great. It was really great. Well, you mentioned Chris Cornell a few years later, you know, very bittersweet. You were able to pay tribute to Chris. Yeah. Yeah, very sad. You know, talk about paying tribute. There is an iconic recording of Hart doing Stairway to Heaven at the Kennedy Center tribute to Led Zeppelin in 2012. There are certain songs that you would think are off limits when it yes. comes to covering. But yet, not only did you cover it, but the version that you did that night is brilliant. So you have to have some chutzpah and to go and say, you know, we're, we're going to cover this song that everybody knows and we're going to kill it. Yeah. I mean, when they asked us to come be a part of that um, tribute, I just thought, well, they're going to ask us to do rock and roll or some song like that. And so when they said Stairway to Heaven, I went, oh, wow, this is... <laughs> This is a minefield because that song's pretty holy. Um, but as it turned out, it went great. I mean, we just kept our eye on the ball and it went great. It reminds me of that scene in the movie Wayne's World where they go into the guitar store and they pick up a guitar and start playing it. And the guy who works there points to a sign and the camera looks up. It says, no stairway to heaven. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's good. Yeah. But Zeppelin was, you know, a big influence on you guys, because not only did you join them at the Kennedy Center's honor doing the killer version of Stairway, but as your later band, the Lovemongers, you covered Battle of Evermore. That's right. Yeah. We've done various Zeppelin songs the whole time. I like the later ones myself. I like the Houses of the Holy Ones. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. I've read that your inspirations vocally, who you've referred to as your quote-unquote vocal teachers, include obviously Robert Plant, but also Ian uh, Gillen and Elton John and, and Rod Stewart. Yeah, for sure. 
when I was first learning how to sing, those were the people that I would ape. Yeah, when you learn how to sing like somebody else, then you add your own thing. Pretty soon you've got your own thing. Well, I I have to ask, you know, as a female singer, were any female vocalists who came before you influential, like somebody like Joplin, anybody else? Aretha Franklin, I think, was. I used to sing a lot of her stuff, full voice and high, and like out of the church, you know, the way she sang. Oh, yeah. Talk about Mount Rushmore. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of great singers, obviously we talked about the beginning and you started recording the Heart records in the early to mid-70s, but your last album, Fierce Bliss, that you released last spring, you're in such great voice. And you talk about covers, you know, the, you, you cover Love of My Life by, by Queen as a duet with Vince Gill. You cover Missionary Man. You cover Jeff Buckley. Talk about the Fierce Bliss album. Anyone who hasn't heard it, you should definitely check that out. It's a great record. Yeah, uh, I had some demos. I went to Muscle Shoals Studio in Alabama. I met a bunch of musicians there that I really got along with well. And we just started cutting these things. And... Um, Pretty soon we realized, well, let's not stop. So we started writing and we cut the whole Fierce Bliss album. My mama told me good, my mama told me strong. She said, be true to yourself and you can't go wrong. But there's just one thing that you gotta understand. You can fool your brother, but don't mess with the missionary man. I think it's it's pretty well balanced, and it's got some great moments on it. And you are in great voice. You're also in great voice on a duet that I heard on a radio station recently with a rock band called Disturbed. Oh, yeah. Where you just kill it, this song called Don't Tell Me. Don't tell me now that you hate me. What is the rest of of this coming year, 2023, looking like? Are you going to be on the road? Are you going to be recording more? What's in the future for Ann Wilson? Well, I'm working on another album. So I'm going to be going back down to Nashville, up to Nashville, writing some more with the band and without the band. And uh, putting that out, we're going on tour and uh, let's see what else. You're going on tour as Ann Wilson with the band. Yeah. Actually, Nancy's going to come to the studio and do a little writing with me. Well, that's exciting. So we'll see how that goes. Where is she living now, Nancy? She's in the Bay Area. Got it. And when was the last time the two of you performed live together? 2019. Wow. Do you see potentially doing that again in the future, or is it too soon to say? No, I'd say potentially, depending on how it goes in the studio. We will all hold our breath and cross our fingers, because I, for for one, would love to see that. Get the Connies together. Get the Connies together. How's Sue? She's fine. She's she's in Seattle. Great. She's she's a teacher. She's teaching um, songwriting and, and how to navigate the industry. Right. Did she ever perform live with you guys? In the Love Mongers, she did. She played keyboards, yeah. Yeah, the Love Mongers we mentioned earlier were you and Nancy and Sue, and you guys made some great music together. Thank you. Yeah, that was a that was a beautiful little vocal band there. Totally. Well, this was an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. And for anyone who has not listened to Anne's music lately, whether it's the music that she made with Nancy and Hart or the music the Lovemongers made or any of the duets that um, Anne recorded in, in the 80s, um, you know, or the Amazing Fierce Bliss record, um, you definitely, you know, 
owe yourself a favor to go and listen to one of the greatest voices of all time. Ann Wilson, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks a lot to this week's guest, Ann Wilson. You can stay connected with Ann at her website, annwilson.com, where you can link from there to all of her social media. And check out a cool feature where you can ask Ann a question yourself. You can also visit Hart's website at heart-music.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbarg, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastino, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, Zach Kornhauser, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on.